Welcome to Deep Pockets by Petra Söderling. A conversation about governments, technologies and innovation. You're now listening to season 3 of Winter 2024. I call this season The Book Club. In March 2023, I published my own book, Governments and Innovation, The Economic Developer's Guide to Our Future, which is available in Amazon in paperback, hardcover, and as a Kindle ebook. It's now time to look at some other great books out there that discuss the same theme, how publicly funded technologies turn into privately run innovation, and what happens after that. Our theme song is by New Orleans jazz icon, Leroy Jones. Deep Pockets works in cooperation with Studio Aguse, a boutique recording studio in south of France for audiobooks, podcasts and music. As I started reading the book for this episode, the very first chapter, third paragraph, threw me back to a cold winter day that I will never forget. Let's see if you recognize this following quote. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. That, of course, was Donald Trump's inauguration speech. I remember watching it on TV, watching the faces of the leaders of the previous administration as they sat there, expressionless, staring into a void. I remember the face of the Democratic candidate who had lost, the person who might have been the first woman president for the United States of America. The reason, of course, why Donald Trump was up there being inaugurated instead of Hillary Clinton had much to do with globalization and how the American middle class felt it was being left behind these uncontrollable global forces. The book for this episode is Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration and Global Capital by Kimberly Clausing. It's a book that defends the global economic integration and suggests ways for Americans to, first of all, ride along and not become crushed by international realities, but also to create national policies within the U.S. to equip workers for the modern economy, better tax policies and better partnerships between taxpayers and businesses. Kimberly Clausing holds the Eric M. Zolt Chair in Tax Law and Policy at the UCLA School of Law. During the first part of the Biden administration, Clausing was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Tax Analysis in the U.S. Department of the Treasury, serving as the lead economist in the Office of Tax Policy. Prior to coming to UCLA, Clausing was the Thurmond A. Miller and Walter Mintz Professor of Economics at Reed College. Professor Clausing is a non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, 
and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. She has worked on economic policy research with the International Monetary Fund, the Hamilton Project, the Brookings Institution, the Tax Policy Center, and the Center for American Progress. She has testified before the House Ways and Means Committee, the Senate Committee on Finance, the Senate Committee on the Budget, and the Joint Economic Committee. That was a long intro, but I really wanted to make it clear that this is a person who is one of the highest authorities on the subject. Dr. Clausing, I'd like to welcome you to Deep Pockets and also ask if I may call you by your first name as we do with other guests here on this podcast. Thank you so much. It's very nice to be here. And yes, of course, you may call me Kimberly. Thank you. Wonderful. Okay. So to get us started, um, I wanted to ask you about something not directly related to the book itself. The title of your book is The Progressive Case for Free Trade, etc. And also, the first sentence on your Wikipedia page is, Kimberly Clausing is a liberal American economist. So my question to you is, are you a scientist or are you a politician? Uh, thanks for that question. So I consider myself an economist first and foremost, and I look at things with the dip- dispassionate view of a scholar and researcher that wants to find the truth. And I, I studied economics because it seemed really like a good tool that enabled our common sense to go further than it otherwise would in solving social problems that we come across. And, and I really think economics is quite good at that. So I also come to economics with a passion for solving social problems um, and, and doing so in a way that's easier to do, of course, if we can do it in a cost-effective way, right? So I think economics helps us see that, um, but it also really serves a social interest. Um, so I don't think my views are easy to label as liberal or conservative, actually, um, and I don't control Wikipedia uh, <laughs> or edit my own page very much. Um, so, you know, I, I, but I do think some people on both sides of the spectrum would have discomfort with aspects of the views, and in a way they might be centrist relative to either the far left or the far right, certainly. Um But I did choose the title of my book, and I think what I was trying to convey there were two things. You know, first, that the values that um, we might consider progressive values, such as concern for the lower and middle classes, such as making progress and solving social problems, those kinds of values also align with the values of economic openness, right? And, And that may not be immediately apparent to every reader, every citizen. So that's part of why I I wrote the book. Um, I think a lot of people are, you know, in present day America and in in around the world, um, concerned often about these groups being left behind, you know, the the lower and middle class groups. And and some of these concerns are are quite real and they're quite documented by the data, which I kind of go over in the book. But one of the interesting things about the ways in which some groups have been left behind is that that sense of being left behind isn't really something that we can lay at the foot of globalization alone. There's a lot of other forces um, that are disruptive and that affect everyday people. Um, And examples include technological change, the growing market power of companies, the declining power of labor movements, 
Um, those are just a few, but there, but there are a lot of other forces as well that, that create disruption. And what I'm trying to kind of say in that, in that book um, is that if we choose to scapegoat um, foreigners and immigrants as the, the true source of all of our problems, that ultimately it's going to do more harm than good for the types of things that progressives value. Um, and as one example, if you, if you put up a bunch of tariffs, right, um, mm-hmm. that's how we used to fund the state if you go back a century or, or two. Um, and those tariffs are regressive consumption taxes that fall disproportionately on the poor, right? So if you replace tariffs with an income tax, you actually can do more to make sure that everybody benefits from any source of disruption rather than just kind of having the people who are buying imported goods sort of shield that burden. Um, and there are a lot of other examples I, I go through in the, in the text too, but there's an enormous amount of, of evidence, for instance, that immigration on net helps almost everybody in society, right? Um, it creates new jobs. Uh, when people come to the United States or they come to Europe, they come not just as workers, but they come as founders of businesses um, and as entrepreneurs, and they create the new industries of the future, right? And if you've got that kind of energy in your economy, you're going to be creating more jobs, more GDP, more innovation than you would if you shut your doors to the best ideas of the world. Absolutely. Um, Look so at the Nobel Prizes. Just exactly. like how many Nobel like Prizes Nobel- were. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the Nobel Prizes, it's, uh, the United States has an outsized, um, uh, you know, uh, is lucky enough to have an outsized role in receiving Nobel Prizes. But if you look at who receives them, they're almost always, I mean, the majority of them in scientific fields are foreign-born um, Americans, right, <laughs> who've come here and, and been able to uh, meet each other and uh, native born Americans in the finest universities of the world. Right. And there are lots of examples in Europe and elsewhere too, of this kind of synergy of of people coming from outside, uh, mixing with the people who are already there and coming up with better ideas than they would if they all stayed in place. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, So when, you know, I looked at your resume, of course, before this call, and you've been writing articles since the early 1990s, but the book that came out in 2019, as far as I know, it's your first book. So why did you decide to write this exact book? Why did you write it in 2019? Yes, so um, it's kind of an interesting story. So when you write a book with an academic press, um, as, as I'm sure you know, they can be slow. Um, and so this book, actually, I started writing it in the early days of 2017. It was my response to that election. And if you look at that election year, it was characterized um, by a, just a lot of bashing of things foreign and of immigrants, right? There was a, a, a sort of return to almost a tribalism where which you hear in that inauguration speech it should be us not them you know and, and the us is defined pretty narrow narrowly and i think that kind of nationalism and xenophobia is is very dangerous like for the future um peace of the world but also for the future prosperity of the world and i and i talk a little bit about those dangers in the book but my my sole emphasis really in the book is that not only is it dangerous it's counterproductive to the very aims that you're purporting to serve right if you if your response to american workers that feel left behind is tariffs and immigration restrictions you're going to be subjecting them to 
new shocks as, as foreign countries will retaliate to our tariffs and that will reduce jobs and export sectors. Um, and new shocks as, as your industries will have to pay more for their imported intermediate goods and then we'll have to still face competition from abroad. Um, and new costs at the grocery store. Um, some simple studies have, have suggested that the Trump tariffs have added, you know, $1,500 or so to the typical costs faced by an American household in a typical year. Right. So all those things actually kind of don't serve the very interests that they're supposed to serve. And, and cutting down on immigration is the same thing. I don't think having fewer entrepreneurs and fewer discoveries in the United States is ultimately going to serve the long run economic prosperity. So I, I suggest in the later part of the book um, solutions that I think are productive, because I do think there are some real problems associated with economic inequality and with having a group of people that, that feel left behind, I think those are huge and serious problems. But I think there are productive and straightforward ways to address those problems that don't kind of shoot yourself in the foot. Um, and, and three that I suggest in the book are making more investments in people, right? So that includes everything from pre-K education to community college to infrastructure that people need to get around in their daily lives. Um, having a more fair tax code where we ask a little more from those at the top who've been really successful due to technological change and all these market power and all these other forces. And then we use some of that money that we collect from those at the top to, to beef up the safety net for those at the bottom. And that includes expanding the earned income tax credit that generates negative tax rates for those at the bottom or expanding the child tax credit to help pull kids out of poverty. Um, and then a third policy uh, that I recommend as well is sort of focusing on, um, you know, ways that the business community themselves can be more transparent in their actions. So it's less about, I, I think business and big business even has a lot to offer um, Americans, but I think they do need to pay, pay their fair share of taxes right here in the United States. And I, and I think they need to also you know, be more transparent about a number of other, um, uh, you know, uh, actions that they take that have larger societal effects. So I'm not suggesting that we throw out the profit motive. <laughs> like I'm very much on board with capitalism. Um, but I, but I do think it's the responsibility of the state to, to set the rules of, of capitalism. And then those rules include uh, requiring a certain amount of transparency and responsibility from business as well. Yeah. I'm uh, uh, chuckling a little bit when you said, you know, you like capitalism. Uh, I also say in my own book that, heck, I love capitalism. Like My book is not yeah. against capitalism because I grew up in Finland yeah. right next to the Soviet Union. So I saw what yeah. it was like Capit going to the Soviet Union. So capitalism rules, even though, yes. uh, you know, <laughs> I, my kids and their friends, they're anti-capitalists and, you know, they want to yeah. uh, embrace more um equitable and social models but i i don't see an alternative for capitalism at this at this point yeah okay so yeah it was 2019 when the book came out and a lot has changed since um so how do you see the things now we've had covid uh ukraine war is ongoing or putin attacked ukraine uh, israel gaza is an ongoing unrest so would you still write the same book if you had to write it today? Yeah, I, I, I certainly would. I mean, I would maybe broaden it in a few respects. I think one of the things that we've seen in the years since the book came out is even more ascendant nationalism, even more conflict. Um, we've seen 
authoritarian governments kind of throughout the world double down on authoritarianism um, and also use the nationalism that they see in the West as sort of a their own scapegoat to say, like, you know, it's a we have to crack down on uh, this or that or uh inkling of democracy because the West is out to get us, right? Um, listen to Trump's inauguration speech, right? Um, and so I think uh, some of that backfiring nationalism has kind of caused resurgent authoritarianism elsewhere and, and really kind of made these messages of um, openness, I think, more important than ever, right? I, I think it's important to to think about, well, how do we build strong uh democracies and, and strong economies. And I think part of how we do it is by focusing on our own domestic strengths, which means investing in people, right? Um, and making sure our prosperity is shared. And you can do that in the capitalist economy by having appropriate state policies, right? That, that take a little from the top and, and help build a safety net, helping those at the bottom, right? So I think these are ways to have a strong, solid, uh, shared prosperity, but then leaves you less vulnerable to these arguments that say, hey, no, the only way to be prosperous is to close the border and to scapegoat others and to restrict what we cooperate with other countries on. And one thing we've seen with COVID and we see with war and we see with climate change is that when you're in situations facing public health and national security and climate disaster, no one country can solve these problems on their own, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like Finland can tackle climate change or Russian aggression or public health all all by itself, right? We all Mm -hmm. need each other. And uh, some of these problems are global collective action problems. And we don't just need uh, the West. We need the whole world to tackle things like climate change. Like if we can't get China uh, to work with us. And they are also very interested, by the way, in working on climate change. If we can't build a more cooperative, um, you know, uh, framework for working with countries like China on climate change, we're not going to solve the problem. Like the world divided into blocks is going to be a less prosperous and a less peaceful and uh, a less safe place to live. Um, and so I think Absolutely. moving towards openness is, is more important than ever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. With openness, uh, comes, uh, innovation, innovation technology is everywhere. Um, prevalent. Um, you, uh, I noticed you've received funding from, uh, the national science foundation as well. So you're an expert on innovation. Uh, so how do you receive the role of technology in, in economy? And I understand this is a really broad question, but what's what goes through your mind when you think about the things like social media, cybersecurity, national security, and so on? Yeah, I mean, I think this latest um, wave of technological innovation around artificial intelligence is yet another example of the enormously transformative role that technological change has played in our economy. You know, my entire life, I was... I was born in 1970, and at the time, technology looked very different from from how it looks now. And every decade that goes by, like there's an enormous amount of, of change with computerization, with digitization, with um, you know all of these other trends. And so, um, in a way, it's sort of analogous to trade in that techno- 
technology and technological change creates winners and losers, but it's ultimately something that we'd be worse off if we stopped somehow, if we tried to throw away our computers and machines, or if we tried to, you know, um, prevent um, biomedical (laughs) discovery, right? Like those Mm -hmm. things, while they create winners or losers and are very disruptive, they, you know, they're ultimately very good things. So I I think the case here is is quite similar. You want to keep Good, but you want to use the power of the state to make sure that those who are left behind or those who are harmed or displaced by these big forces have rungs up on the ladder. And I think um, community college is a good example, right? If you, if you lose your job doing some old school manufacturing that got displaced by the next wave of robots, right? Like you need to be mm-hmm. able to find resources that let you use the re- the robots to your advantage, right? That let you retool and reskill. And you need to be able to do that and have the, the economic resources to support yourself while you're doing that. You know, so I think those kinds of disruptions, um, there's every bit of evidence are just as, uh, just as disruptive as anything that comes from trade, if not far more so. Um, and we need to be prepared with the sort of fundamentals that I talked about earlier, investing in people and infrastructure and uh, having a fair tax system and, and, and having the state set appropriate rules of the road so that we can make sure that society benefits. Um, so I, I view these as, as very similar in some respects. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Very insightful. Okay, my final question. Uh, Based on everything we discussed here today, what kind of advice would you give to the young people of today? Yeah, so um, I have a couple of young people in my life, myself, my my children, but also many students. um, And uh, all, all these people are in their 20s. Um, and it, many of them, I think, do get a sense of um, futility and fatalism around some of these big forces that are surrounding us. Uh, they look at, at climate change. They look at technological change. They look at globalization. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just want to throw up their hands and be like, you know, I wish we could all uh, have a more simple life. Um, but I think it's extremely important that, that people engage and that they work toward the, the future that they want, right? Like, so my view of a future I've already described as one with capitalism and openness and where we work with other countries to solve global collection active, global collective action problems. But, you know, you can't just wave a wand and make all of that happen. So I think sometimes what's most productive is for people to pick one thing that they care about um, mm. and sort of engage and work on that. If, if if it's that you care about, you know, clean water access for a community, you work on that. Or or maybe you don't have the skills to work on that and you just have a, a job that's um, – doesn't directly address the problem you're worried about find some ways to, you know, volunteer or contribute or or think about these other problems that do stress you, but pick something, you know, that's tangible that you can focus your energy on. Don't let the sort of overwhelming, you know, magnitude of all the problems in the world lead you to inaction because, you know, the world improves by a million actions of a million people all determined to make it slightly better in their little corner. So I think everyone should join up, engage and, and work. I love it. That's good advice for even us older people. <laughs> Kimberly Clausing, uh, the book is called Open, The Progressive Case for Free Trade, Immigration and Global Capital. It's available on Amazon in paperback, hardcover and Kindle ebook. 
Thank you so much for coming to Deep Pockets. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. You've listened to Deep Pockets by Petra Söderling. To subscribe for more content like this, go to petrasoderling.com. The wonderful music you heard is by Leroy Jones, an iconic New Orleans Jazz Hall of Fame trumpetist. You can find this and other Leroy Jones tunes at your favorite online or offline music store. Deep Pockets works in cooperation with Maison de la Guse, a quaint bed and breakfast, and Studio Aguse, a boutique recording studio in south of France for audiobooks, podcasts, and music. Stay in the beautiful bed and breakfast Maison while recording your work, assisted by top hospitality and audio technology professionals. Find on Instagram as Studio Aguse, that's A-G-U-Z-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe, like, rate, and share our episodes. It means a lot to me and to my guests. We appreciate your support. Thank you.